Now you'll find the passage that we're looking at from verse 17 down to verse 24 of the passage of the chapter this morning, chapter 11 of Romans. Coming to the end of this section which has begun in chapter 9 uh, and is dealing with the uh, problem of Jewish failure to respond to the coming of the Master. Uh, much of the chapters have been concerned with demonstrating that God has not, in fact, failed in his promises to Israel. But embedded also in the, the teaching in relation to Israel have been a number of really important and practical lessons on, for example, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in our evangelism, the need to have preachers sent out to proclaim the gospel, and the cause for hopefulness in regard to the future uh, prosperity of the church. Here we have a very uh, important practical lesson in regard to the danger of complacency and arrogance. Uh, that is a, a constant danger in the Christian life, and it's a danger also in relation to how we regard uh, our Jewish roots. Uh, the danger that we uh, think that we've gone beyond our indebtedness uh, to Israel and the Old Testament. And here we have an example of people who are uh, new to the Christian faith looking down on the Jewish people. Uh, so there's a specific danger in relation to uh, the Jews, but there's also a wider risk of complacency creeping into the Christian life. Anti-Semitism or uh, anti-Jewish feeling uh, has been a, a a real curse for centuries and it's still with us today. Uh, there have been uh, murmurings of that in the political sphere in this country and even this weekend uh, there was news of a shooting in a synagogue in Pittsburgh in the United States. Uh, in Paul's day the Jewish community in Rome uh, which he is addressing uh, was distinctive as all Jewish communities were. They kept their own form of worship uh, their own language, their own customs. And Paul is speaking to Romans, some of whom would have been tempted to join in with the, the general despising of Jewish, Ju Jewish uh, distinctiveness. The Romans, as a people, looked down upon the Jews as a conquered state, and it may have well been the case that something of this superiority complex had filtered its way into the church itself. And Paul wants to nip it in the bud. And one of the best ways that there is in dealing with pastoral issues, issues of attitude or behavior, is to think about the character of God and to see how the, some of the, what are sometimes looked upon as theological or doctrinal issues, are very, very practical. For example, if, if somebody is feeling very insecure in life, uh, always wanting to prove themselves, always wanting to garner the respect of others, the, the teaching of the fatherhood of God and the doctrine of adoption uh, is a, a real medicine for, for such a person. And in this case, Paul is taking uh, two of God's attributes, his, his sternness, which will break down into his wrath and his justice, and his kindness, and is asking the, the people in Rome to reflect on these things as they relate to 
through their own standing before God. And if they do, he assures them that this will deal with any sense of arrogance or complacency that they might have. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Verse 22. And that is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to consider the kindness and sternness of God. And we're going to make application from these to ourselves. Uh, we're going to consider it in, uh, not in the, the, uh, the kindness, uh, sternness order, but as Paul himself uh, deals with it. First of all, looking at the sternness of God and then the kindness of God. So let's think first of all about the sternness or the severity of God. The, the word that's translated sternness or severity is only used once in the New Testament. Uh, but Professor John Murray uh, comments that although the word for severity only occurs here in the New Testament, yet it denotes that which is involved in his wrath and retributive justice, okay, his, his punishment of the wicked, the wicked getting their deserts from God. And Murray quotes Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And chapter 2, 4 to, 4 to 16, including verse 8, which heads, But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, for them there will be wrath and anger. In this passage, the, the sternness or the severity of God is demonstrated uh, in his judgment on Israel, in his breaking off the branches of Israel from the tree of the church. Now, there is an extended piece of teaching which is based on uh, how the olive tree is cultivated. The olive tree was a very important tree in Israel. Uh, you got the, the olives uh, which uh, you ate as, uh, as fruit in your salad or whatever. And there was the olive oil which was produced through pressing the, the fruit. It was so important in the economy of Israel that it's often used as a symbol of the state Israel, the olive tree. And there's this extended description of the process of grafting and of breaking off. And uh, if you have uh, fruit trees in your garden, then uh, you maybe had uh, more of an insight than we were able to give to the children of what goes on in uh, the grafting of a fruit tree. In the case of, uh, say, an apple tree, you have the, the rootstock, which is usually derived from uh, uh, an apple variety that, that would not give you fruit of, of uh, any real edible quality, but it's valued for the, the vigour that it brings to the complete tree once it's grafted. Uh, you have this rootstock, and then... Uh, you will take a little side shoot from the variety of apple that you want to end up with, a little shoot, a diagonal cut, and it's inserted into a corresponding slit that is made in the rootstock. So the grafted, cultivated slip is placed in so that the, the tissue just under the bark in both of the plants is touching each other. There's a movement of nutrients. There's a life flow between the rootstock and the graft. And 
that's kept together with a little collar, usually a rubber band that will keep the graft into the rootstock. And then you've got a proper apple tree that will have all the characteristics of the graft, of the, the tree from which the graft was taken. So nice, juicy apples, plenty of production. But the rootstock is giving that vigour, it's, it's giving that strength uh, and productivity uh, that is so important. Now, if you have been observant, as we've read through the passage, you'll notice that Paul speaks about a wild olive being grafted onto a cultivated olive tree, which is the opposite way round to which we normally work. You graft a cultivated uh, fruit tree into a wild or a rootstock tree. So this is the reverse of what's normally practiced. But there's two things to be said there. First of all, verse 24, Paul says it's contrary to nature. He's simply using an illustration, putting the, the, the wild onto the cultivated. But actually, it's now known that there was in Israel the practice on occasion of grafting on a wild into a natural uh, olive tree. Uh, one of the commentators, William Ramsey, has, has uh, pointed out that this was occasionally used for certain purposes. But in any case, Paul is using it as, a, as an illustration on which to hang certain truths. And Paul's saying that God's severity is illustrated by removing Jewish branches from the olive tree and replacing them with the graft of the Gentile church. The Jewish branches were broken off, he says in verse 20, because of unbelief. And the warning is that if God did not spare the natural branches, then he wouldn't spare the grafted-in wild branches either. That the Gentiles have to walk with humility. Now, be clear. Paul is not saying that if you're a true believer, you can lose your salvation. That's not the teaching of uh, the breaking off of branches. That would go against uh, the very plain teaching elsewhere in the Bible. What it is, is a warning against presumption. It's a warning against thinking that you are actually a true believer when in fact you're not. You just have the outward appearance of being one. It's a warning that the Gentile Christians who thought that they were in a favoured category needed to hear. So the severity of God means that God will break off branches that are not producing fruit and therefore are showing that they are not truly in union with Jesus. And you can prove that historically. You can prove it in the history of the church. There are places today which are totally wild in regard to the gospel, which once were fruitful and productive for the gospel. Uh, if you trace uh, some of Paul's early missionary activity, uh, it's interesting that a lot of it was in what we call Turkey today, Asia Minor, uh, in biblical days. So, Derby and Lystri, Pisidian Antioch, and so on. These towns where, where Paul laboured, planted churches, and in the early part of the church, uh, were real power centres of Christianity. Uh, some of the early church fathers uh, came uh, from Turkey. And today, the very name Turkey is synonymous with uh, Islam. 
And what happened was the church became uh, complacent, gradually became nominal, and the Muslims took over. North Africa. Think of North Africa today. Uh, Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco. We th- again, we, we think in terms of a radical Islam. Think of some of the, the, uh, the, the training camps that uh, radical uh, Islamists had uh, in Libya, for example. But in the early centuries of the church, this again was a gospel powerhouse. There were great Christian leaders from this area, including Tertullian, and Cyprian, Clement, Athanasius, great Christian leader, Athanasius, and, and Augustine, a towering giant of theology. And these men came from North Africa. And again, the same thing happened with North Africa. Uh, the church declined, became complacent, and Islam came in. Islam took over. And again, it's another example of branches having been broken off. Of course, the danger is that we become complacent and we think, oh, that's okay, that was over there. Think of Europe. Think of what happened to Europe. The gospel uh, comes to Europe. The great uh, event in the book of the Acts is when Paul comes to Philippi. It's a, it's a first, it's the bringing of the gospel to Europe. The gospel spread like wildfire in the early days. Uh, then the Emperor Constantine became a Christian in 312 AD. Uh, Christianity became the official religion uh, of the Roman Empire. And what happened was complacency set in. Christianity became a nominal religion. And over the centuries, superstition and darkness came in until it reached a, a, a low point in the medieval period. took the awakening we call the Reformation to bring the church in Western Europe back to the Bible. It's a great period, the Reformation. But then complacency set in again. And in some of the, the, the lands that are most associated with the Reformation, think of, of France and Germany and Holland and England and Scotland. Again, these countries, our own included, are like deserts, gospel deserts. Because complacency and nominalism uh, came in. And the percentage of churchgoers in all these countries is a tiny number. Now, ironically, the church doesn't get it. The church doesn't get the the fact that uh, the severity of God means that he will break off branches that are unproductive. Church fails to see that she's under the chastening hand of God. The church in our own land of Scotland has not considered the severity of God. It's a, a concept that is alien to the average nominal Christian here. Why? Because we have a, a picture, a mind view of God uh, that is like some kind of benevolent grandpa. Or a nice uncle who comes to stay and just wants everybody to be happy. Wouldn't raise his voice to anybody. That's, that's the picture that people have of God. Consider the severity of God, Paul says. David Robertson's got a really good um, editorial in the, the record this month. And uh, the theme is uh, the decline of Christianity and civic religion. Civic religion where 
Christianity is recognized by the state, but is kept within strict bounds. And the point that David's making is that uh, the church is still probably overrepresented in relation to the number of people who are worshipping today. Uh, clerics get on uh, the radio and uh, programs like Thought for the Day, you know, have somebody usually twittering some banalities or, or simply echoing the, the spirit of the age. There's a, a certain uh, kind of message which is permissible and the church is, is permitted to have its day in the sun so long as it keeps within the, the bounds of the secular state. Churches host kirking of the councils. Uh, their buildings are nice places for weddings. But woe betide the preacher that breaks out of the bounds and goes against the spirit of the age and speaks about the uniqueness of Christ as the way to God or the binary nature of gender or the importance for parents to discipline children or the sinfulness of same-sex uh, relationships. The reality of heaven and hell. Speaking biblically and prophetically on any of these subjects will result in clergy losing that social recognition that so many of them crave and so many therefore are unwilling to speak out. No one will acknowledge that God is the judge who acts in severe justice against unbelief. He will not tolerate his name being profaned by people who have an appearance of Christianity, but no experience of it. And year passes year, and the mainline churches in our land have no awareness of the fact that God is dealing in judgment on our country because they seem to have a seat at the table, which is all that matters to some. Will the Muslims take over? Professor MacLeod addressed that question and answered it in the affirmative, yes, he said in his weekly newspaper column a number of years ago and was sacked for his troubles. Consider, Paul says, the sternness of God. God is unstinting in his judgments. Unbelief is a heinous crime. Think of a Husband who says to his wife, I don't believe in you anymore. I don't believe in your character as a good person. I don't believe in the love that we have for one another. I don't believe in the commitment that we once made. And I'm going to chase after other women. How disgusting that would be. That's the awfulness of unbelief. And God rightly judges that. But on the other hand... Consider the kindness of God. Consider God's kindness to the undeserving. Verse 20, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. You stand by faith. Justification by faith alone is the great evidence of the kindness of God. We get what we don't deserve. We get grace. God knows that we cannot achieve his standard by our own flawed efforts at moral uprightness. And so he makes provision for us. 
He sends his son to live the perfect life on our behalf. He allows the severity of his wrath to fall on his son on the cross. He shows kindness to the undeserving sinner. And wonder of wonders, he shows kindness to the one who is backslidden and has wandered away from God and who repents and returns again. He shows kindness to the rebel son. It's true on an individual basis. And maybe you've experienced that in your life. You know, you trusted Jesus, but you wandered sadly away from him. God awoke in you a desire to repent, and God received you. His kindness. And we see that on a national scale and an international scale as well. We mentioned the Reformation. The, the Reformation uh, is an example of God receiving back that that son that had wandered away. God's kindness shown to the, the European nations in the sending out of the early missionaries. Ninian, Columba, and so on. And then that dreadful turning away, descent into darkness. God in his kindness sends revival, welcomes back the penitent children. And Paul says God can do the same with the Jews who were currently resisting the gospel in his day. Verse 23, if they do not persist in their unbelief, they will be grafted in again, for God is able to graft them in again. God will receive repentant sinners. God's kindness shines in redeeming and restoring grace. He is able to graft back in the one who has wandered away. Now, each one of you in church this morning who is a Christian is a walking, talking illustration of the kindness of God. His amazing grace has come alive in your experience. If you're a Christian, that's what's true of you. You get what you don't deserve. You don't get what you do deserve. Judgment in hell. You get what you don't deserve. Grace, kindness, acceptance. None of us was ever by our own efforts year after year go to scale the hill of heaven. But God gave us all we need. God has equipped us, clothed us in Jesus. He has grafted us in, in his kindness. Consider the kindness of God. Consider the basis on which you stand before God today. You're saved by faith and not by works. Now we close with some applications on, on these two things now uh, as, we, as we conclude. And the first one, the first application we make is that we should never, ever forget our indebtedness, our ongoing indebtedness to Israel and the Old Testament. Although the Jews, for the main part, have been cut off, we are one with them insofar as the Old Testament supports us also. We have sprung from the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The patriarchs are our people. Think of that. The Jews are not just someone out there. They are our people. They are our kind. We have sprung from that root. We remain 
indebted to that root. Their Bible is our Bible. The Old Testament uh, is what the, the Christian faith springs from. It's the nourishing sap that sustains us as New Covenant believers. We must never forget that. The Bible is one book. And we need desperately the Old Testament if we understand to understand the New Testament. And if you don't, if, you, if you're not a student of the Old Testament, you will have an impoverished understanding of Jesus and his work and of how that outworks in the life of the church. And you'll make some fundamental errors in, in practice unless you re- recognize that we're one with our Old Testament forebears. Some of the principles that are built into the Old Testament are vital to, to seeing how we apply church practice today. Uh, even look at the, the verse 16. Uh, the principle, if the whole batch is, uh, if first fruits is holy, the whole batch is holy, if the root is holy, so are the branches. There's a principle. That principle, friends, applies to what, how we think in baptism. It's continuation with circumcision and baptism. If you understand the covenant sign in a way that goes against the, the, the communal nature of Old Testament religion, the family-centered convictions of the Old Testament, you're ignoring the Old Testament. You'll miss the point. Why, why is it that so much of the, the modern church has got an allergy to singing psalms? That seems to me very strange. Why would we not want to sing uh, the, the songbook that we have in our Old Testament? Strange beyond strange. It's because people are looking on the Old Testament as though it's somehow something we've gone beyond. One of the earliest heretics uh, in the church, uh, we've mentioned a lot of the good guys, one of the bad guys was Marcion. And Marcion had this view that uh, the God of the Old Testament was a stern, judgmental God. And he... he, he, uh, Opposed the, the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New Testament. And so Marcion started a, a, a sect where they ignored the Old Testament, but not just that, they went through the New Testament uh, and they got rid of every mention of the Old Testament. All Old Testament references were got rid of. Now the problem with that is if you try doing that, you're not left with very much. <laughs> You're, you've got big, big gaps in your New Testament as well as the Old Testament. But many Christians today are Marcionite in their thinking. They really only read the New Testament. They don't think through the Old Testament and its implications. We need a full appreciation of the nourishing rootstock on which our faith is built. That's the first application. Secondly... We ought to walk humbly before our God. Verse 20, do not be arrogant, but be afraid. It's really what we talk about when we speak about the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. So, if you think you are standing, be careful that you don't fall. See, the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which, which is that if, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, then God will keep you to the end. You know, you will persevere. You're not going to lose your faith. That is not a blank check to be careless and proud and complacent. 
There are all sorts of, of, of warnings and exhortations in the Bible which ensure that the saints persevere. We've got to heed our life. The only evidence of past conversion is present day convertedness. The sign that you were once converted is the proof today, the fruit that you're, you're showing of being a child of God, a follower of Jesus. All around us, sadly, are examples of people who have made shipwreck of their faith. People who outwardly seem to be Christian. Even people who were placed on a pedestal and crashed. Inwardly, they were not right with God. We ought to walk humbly before God. And then thirdly, our union with Christ is the basis of our true hope. Uh, Jesus also used this, this image of grafting to describe what it is to be a believer. He spoke about abiding in him. I am the vine, you are the branches. And the picture is of the, the sap with all its nutrients flowing from uh, the root, who is Jesus, into the branches who are ours. And what's that saying to us? It's saying to us that uh, we produce fruit not through our own efforts, but through abiding in Jesus, relying in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit on whom we are dependent that produces the Christ-like character that God is seeking in us. Now that should cause us, again, to, to humbly search our hearts. Am I resting on Jesus for a Christ-like character? Am I relying on the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit was taken from my life today, would that make a difference? Am I growing in the Christian life? Am I making visible progress? Is my progress evident to others? Am I changed from what I once was? See, all of these questions are to do with walking humbly before God. It's the very opposite of the complacency that Paul is warning us against. They cause us to tremble at the thought of ever being exposed as a fraud. And they cause us to rely more and more on Jesus. The great root of David. The source of strength. The giver of the spirit. Amen. May God bless to us. His most holy word. Amen.